Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson, and this is episode number 434. Today on the show, we've got outdoor writer and archery nut, Jace Boserman, and we're going to dive deep into what he considers the perfect whitetail bow setup. everybody, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I am your guest host, Tony Peterson. Mark is off somewhere today, and he just, uh, he sent me a text and said he's got a new saddle hunting strategy where he wants to be more limber and more flexible. And so he's down at a hot yoga slash ballet retreat. I guess he said something like that. So he's going to be a monster in the... Uh, the saddle this fall, I guess that's his plan. So you've got me this week. And since we're kind of in the heart of the summer and really thinking a lot about shooting and gear and, and summertime scouting, I wanted to have Jace Boserman on. Jace is a outdoor writer. He's a podcast host. He is one of the people I know who's set up probably more bows than just about anyone else out there. Really, really a gear junkie. He's a Western guy who has fallen in love with whitetail hunting. So he takes his archery tackle seriously. And so I wanted to do just a, a total bow breakdown. Why do you do this? Why do you do that? What's your whitetail setup look like? And we really get into the weeds and a lot of this stuff. This is a kind of a gear centric podcast, but it also ties in uh, summer shooting practice. Uh, how you should how you should address those things and how it applies to being a better shot in the whitetail woods. Really interesting podcast. Jace is an awesome guest. I think you're going to love it. Jace Michael, how are you, buddy? I am well, Mr. Peterson. How are you doing this this wonderful morning? I, I'm great. I'm drinking coffee out of a frozen mug. Uh, not not like a physically frozen mug, like a Disney frozen mug. <laughs> and it's delicious. And I just worked some dogs. And now I want to talk to you about some bow hunting gear. Uh, first question, though. So it's about 95 degrees here. So is it like 200 where you live? 213, Okay, actually. yeah. Uh, we just got, yeah, I just went outside and checked. I let the dogs out well and, or I let the dogs out and don't, you don't have to lie, dude. I know you're drinking out of Lila's sippy cup, frozen Disney. <laughs> you're a Disney guy. See? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So, the hip is, wheel. so is it super, super, super hot out there or not? It is super hot. We, but we weren't, man. We have had more rain 
in the last month than we've probably gotten in the last two years combined. I'd say over the last month and a half. So now it is though, we we hit 100 yesterday, we're gonna hit 101 today, and then we're kinda gonna get into that hot dry spell that usually is June, first part of July, and then hopefully we'll catch our monsoon season at the end of July, because everything here right now is, you'd actually come here and wanna be here and not question why, like, why I wanna live here. Like the, the plains are like super green, the, the 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 prairie grass is up to your calf. I mean, the river bottoms are gorgeous. The fields look good. So, it's 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 a pretty time to to live here right now. But it will be short lived. Yeah, that's uh, I've I've fallen for that trap before. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it should be good antelope hunting though for you this year with those conditions. I hope so. Yeah. yeah, it should be good. If the numbers are there, we'll we'll be fine. So we're gonna talk about whitetail gear. But I had a thought uh, earlier earlier today. I was when I was working the dogs. You drew a sheep tag this year. I did. 19 years of applying and I drew a sheep tag. So I was thinking, I don't know how many guests Mark's had on this podcast. It's a lot. And yeah. I was like, I'll bet, I bet Jace isn't the only one who's drawn a sheep tag on here. Cause he's probably had Lee Lukoski and some of those guys on, but sure. I'll bet you're the poorest guy to ever draw a sheep tag on this podcast. <laughs> I am the poorest guy to ever draw a sheep tag and it will be the only sheep tag I ever have. Because I'll never draw again in Colorado. Um, in my younger years, I, I, I mean, as a struggling outdoor writer, I didn't have the money to put in in various states for sheep. Um, so this will be my one, one and done on sheep. But I feel very fortunate to have the tag. And uh, yeah, season starts August first, and so all all preparations are being made. And I'm I'm really just I'm really excited to have have the tag um, drew to have drawn the unit that I drew and, and it's going to be a lot of fun. It's, it's going to be a blast. So you, you live in arguably the flattest place in the country. How do you practice for a sheep hunt? Well, um, practice shooting wise or just, yeah. So (laughs) it's, it's a little bit difficult, but what, what I'm, what I'm doing is just making sure that everything is, everything is flying good and true, you know, obviously on flat ground, um, as, as far as I, as far as I want to shoot, you know, shooting typically out to 120 yards, not, I'm definitely not going to shoot at a sheep at 120 yards, but just making sure that the bow and everything that, that my, that my arrow broadhead combo is dialed in, um, those types of things. And then I've actually made a few trips just to the Canyon country out here, which we do have where I can practice some steep angled shots. And I've just toted, um, you know, either a block or a small 3d target and position that target at, uh, steep angles up and downhill, um, checking my third axis, that sort of thing, and making sure that, that everything is, is, is spot on ready. But it is a challenge to practice those type of shots here. Um, but I don't have to go too far to do it. So I've been trying to do that once a week um, without fail and, and not making an excuse not to drive the 30, 40 minutes out there and not get that done because you know the chances of that shot being on flat ground is going to be pretty minimal. So I want to make sure that my form, um, you know, bending at the waist, making sure that everything is just right, that I'm climbing into my anchor and executing through my hinge properly. All those things have to be just right. So I don't want to leave anything to chance. So it's just like anything else, right? It's just staying disciplined and making sure that you're dedicating that time and, and making yourself available to go get that work in. Yeah. And you, you shoot a lot anyway, you set up a lot of bows and you, you, you're a gearhead for sure when it comes to archery, but how much, how much added pressure do you feel, you know, practice wise? I know, I know physically, like for the people who don't know, 
you're always working out and running and you've done hundred mile mountain marathons. You're probably not yeah. that worried about that aspect compared to a lot of people would be, Yeah. but what, what's the pressure situation like to just not totally shank a shot on a, a sheep? Well, so much that I don't even want to talk about it. And I'm pissed <laughs> that you put it out there in the universe. Thanks, Dick. There's, um, there's no way you're going to screw up an easy shot on a sheep. Dude. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I you know, I, I, a, a guy I know in Gunnison, well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to know him is up where I drew this tag. His name's Connor Clark. Uh, his dad owns a trading post there where they, they trade antlers. And it's an amazing store. If you're ever in the Gunnison area, like it's, it's, it's an incredible store. And Connor actually drew that tag last year during the late season. And, uh, we got to talking and he actually sent me a video of his hunt. He brought along a videographer and he had the hunt videoed and he actually, he missed a Ram. I mean, on the video, he, he missed, he missed a Ram and you could just see like, the devastation of thinking it was over and like it was my once in a lifetime opportunity. And, you know, three or four days, I'm not sure how many days later he killed, he killed a bigger Ram. Um, and talking to him, he's like, man, I considered myself Iceman until you're at full draw on a big, on a once in a lifetime, bighorn sheep. So he's like, just keep that, keep that in mind. Um, so, you know, I'm just trying to constantly put myself in as much pressure situations as I can while I'm shooting. Um, just, you know, I'll go run, I'll lift really heavy and then, um, come home and shoot just, just different things like that to just try to up the ante a little bit. And then just making sure right now I'm not focused on how many arrows I'm shooting per day. Um, a lot of guys will go out and they'll shoot 200 arrows to say they shot 200 arrows. Um, you know, yesterday I stepped out and I shot five arrows at 65 yards and I'm just making sure that my execution, that I make the best shot that I can make for every arrow that I send. And that's my goal. That's always my goal, but I've really been honing in on that from this point forward is making sure whether I step in the backyard to shoot at 20 yards or I'm shooting at 120 yards, that my execution from the time that I get into my bow to the time I crawl into the anchor until my release breaks, that my follow through, that everything is just that that arrow is the best arrow that I can make. Cause I, 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 I think it was general Patton that, that had a quote that's really stuck with me and I'm not sure it's him, but he said, if a man gives his best, what else is there? And so that's kind of why the way I'm going into this hunt is I'm giving my best physically, I'm preparing myself mentally, and I'm preparing to make the best shot that I possibly can. If I'm, if, if I earn that opportunity and you know, at the end of the day, if I go through those things, I, I'm confident that, uh, that I won't botch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it's, it's so easy to, to think about this, uh, to, to, to accept the importance and the dedication to that tag and, and the shooting. And, you know, it's, you know, that you can't just go up and get into the mountains and scout those sheep all the time. Like, so you got to control what you can control. And I think that, you know, in the whitetail world, we really gloss over this aspect a lot. Like there are people who are, who are, uh, you know, gear junkies who shoot a lot and they, they like the, sure. they like the flight of the arrow. Right. But yep. we, we focus so hard on scouting and finding the spot and patterning the buck and finding that buck bed and doing that kind of stuff that we've kind of just like missed the message a little bit that it's, it's real important to keep shooting and to get into that muscle memory situation. So you can go on autopilot because you're going to get some level of buck fever it, most of us are, especially if we're working at it hard on public yep. land or pressure deer and that muscle memory and that just going into the zone thing where even if your brain shuts down like 90%, you can still make it happen. That's important. 
it's huge. It's, it's massively important. And I think that's where you have to be honest with yourself. You know, I hear guys tell me all the time, you know, I don't get buck fever at all. I never get buck fever. You know, I don't know how many animals I've taken with my bow, but it, it's been a bunch. And if I go to shoot a doe to this day, there is an element of buck fever, what, even though it's a doe that sets in and it's preparing for and being able to handle that and still execute in those situations. You can, I've always said you can, you can scout and, and, you know, I could know where this ram that hopefully is mine that is living out there somewhere is going to go and, and, and be, and I could know the rock he's going to stand on and everything like that. I could do all of that, but if I can't execute and I haven't done my job in that, in those terms, then the scouting and the maps and talking to these guys that have had the tag and visiting with biologists and looking at winter mortality and all the things that, that go into, to, to, to any type of hunt that, I mean, they're kind of for not at that point, you have the experience of that, but at the end of the day, you, you have a sob story to tell rather than, oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it was an amazing experience from top to bottom and I finished the way I wanted to finish. Yeah. Um, it was a clean shot. The animal expired quickly and, you know, and, and that should be the goal of, of, of whether you're holding, you know, whether you have a sheep tag in your hand or whether you're going to go out and, and thin your dough, thin your dough herd or something along those lines. It's, it's our responsibility to make sure that we're at our best when we're shooting. And I know that it's easy to get caught up in, like you said, man, the, 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 the scouting and figuring that buck out and, and, and where his home range is and, and where he's watering and bedding and where he's, where he's, you know, where he's going to eat and all the different things that go into that. But you have to be able to um, execute because if you do things right, you and I have talked about this before, chances are you're going to earn your opportunity. You know, you're going to get that shot. You're going to get that chance. And if you're prepared for that chance, your odds of finishing the way you wanted to finish, the way you imagined finishing um, in your brain will, will, will come, will come true, you know, and I think you have to have that visualization. You know, I visualize myself holding that Ram. I visualize my arrow hitting home where it needs to be. I'm, I'm, you know, you have to step away from the negativity and the like, oh my gosh, what if, what if, what if, as soon as you start putting that into your mind, um, you know, things can go South in a hurry. Um, so (laughs) it's an easy, it's an easy thing to talk about and say, but it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Well, it's, it's uh you know when we I've I've written about buck fever and I've talked about it a ton and I think you have to just accept the fact that you know that it's it's there at some level always like you said and yep. it can rear its head at stupid times you don't expect and so you just sort of learn to compartmentalize it and go okay that little part that sucks it's going to be there like I yeah. I deal with this and it it always comes up at such weird times like there'll be times where I'll see a buck coming down the trail that I've been working on for on public land. I'm like, he's to-. like, I'm just so confident. And yep. there'll be times where I go where it's just like, this should be an easy one. And they're going to come out into this field and I'm going to shoot them and I will screw it up so bad. And it's just like a reminder that it it's, you, you can think, okay, well, I'm, I am the ice man, like you said, and I, I will never, I, I'm, I'm not going to shank this ever or whatever. Like you will, like it's coming. Yeah. And it's just, you don't know when. And so it's like, you have to be aware that every time you do this is sort of like, you know, it's not the first time, but you have to understand like the the potential for failure is there. So you have to do your part. Yeah. The potential for failure is always there, especially when you're bow hunting. Um, It's Murphy's law in a lot of ways that anything that, you know, can go wrong, will go wrong. And 
but it's it's being it's preparing to make sure that 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 doesn't happen to the best to the best that you possibly can. Yeah. Um, for this for this sheep hunt, are, did you set up a bow specifically for that? I did. Um, <laughs> I did. Uh, just being the gearhead that I am and wanting to make sure that um, everything is exactly the way I want it. I have played with multiple setups, um, and, and, but I've got everything dialed down to exactly at this point. I mean, it's June. What are we? June 9th. Um, I'm less than two months away from the opener and nothing will change at this point. You know, what, what um, does the sheep setup look like for you then? So for me, my, my sheep setup right now is I'm shooting Hoyt's, uh, Venom. Um, and it's, uh, th- the Venom 33. So it's a 33 inch axle to axle bow. It's got a, it's got a, what I would consider to be a forgiving brace height. It's not too light. It's not too heavy. Um, it's got a, a stabilizer mount on it that I really like that, that, that puts weight where I need it and allows me to customize that weight. Um, and plus I can run uh, a back bar stabilizer and I, I have that bow set up to right now where, you know, speed is secondary for me, um, with this particular bow, um, I'm shooting a micro diameter arrow, but I'm still, um, I'm still right around 418 grains, right, right in there. And for me, um, the smooth draw being able to climb into my anchor um, let that pin settle and, and, and hold without those cams itching to press themselves into action. Um, and, and being able to be very balanced and controlled is what I was looking for when I set up my sheep bow. I want, I want maximum control, um, from start to finish. Are, are you using a 14 pin site or are you using a single pin? Mover? <laughs> definitely, uh, definitely not using a, a 14 pin site. <laughs> I am using, uh, I am going to stay with my single pin, uh, spot hog, hog father slider site. And I know that's, that's something where a lot of people, a lot of people can argue that. Um, but, uh, for me personally, um, a single pin site, I, I like that dial to the yard, making sure that I'm able to dial to the yard. Um, I like being able to have that ability to, and, and plus it's for me, it's part of my shot process as a whole. Um, I know that once I get my range, you know, I go directly to my site and I dial into that yard and that has become so ingrained in me from whitetails to elk to everything that that is just simply a part of my, simply a part of my process. Yeah. So I am going with the single pin sites. Uh, again, I like that dial to the yard capability. And again, I, that's what I am. That's what I'm absolutely the most familiar with. Yeah. That's absolutely well, and, and when what you I'm think of, you know, the, the main argument against a single pin mover is they don't want to mess around when it animal comes into 20 yards and they were dialed to 40 or whatever. But when you think about a sheep situation, you're most likely going to range that sucker 46 times before you get the shot, before he stands up or whatever. It's going to be, yeah, that's a good choice. What do you, what do you set up then? Do you, do you set up a dedicated white, white tail bow? I do. Yep. I, 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 well, let me rephrase that. Sometimes I do. And sometimes I don't this year, this year, I definitely will set up a dedicated whitetail bow just because everything right now is set up. So Western oriented mm-hmm. for me, um, that I definitely am going to set up a dedicated, uh, whitetail bow. What's different about that? No stabilizer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not you. I still, I still am going to, I'm still 100% going to run, uh, run my stabilizer system the way that I want to run my stabilizer system. Um, however, what's different for me in, in a whitetail situation. And this is where I think a lot of guys might overlook or 
I, I pull fewer pounds when I'm, sh- when I'm, when I'm hunting whitetails. I just do. Um, I know that my shots are going to usually be between 20 and 40 yards. Um, and so I'm not overly concerned with, with the poundage that I'm pulling. I want to make sure that when the conditions are their worst and I'm bundled up in tons of, tons of clothing and I'm trying to stay warm and I'm sitting in my stand and those types of things that when I go and I hook onto my release, that I can, that I can hold my bow directly out in front of me and and bring that string straight back to reduce movement, um, to reduce anything like that, where that buck might snap its gaze up on and settle, fix its gaze on me up on the stand. I want to make sure that I can come, come directly back, crawl into my anchor and then execute the shot that the, the way that I need to the way that I need to execute. So draw weight is something that I always pay very close attention to. And the only way you'll know, um, I see a lot of guys when they go to draw their bow, uh, even, even at a local 3d shoot or something like that. And they're, they're pointing that riser to the sky and you can just see the struggle on their faces. They're coming to full draw, or they're pointing that bow almost down at the ground and then bringing, you know, to, to, to get to full draw. And, and those are telltale signs that you're pulling too much weight and that's standing on a range in shorts in a t-shirt um and not shooting in you know 20 degrees wearing tons of clothing so you need to you need to be able to practice those things and know um that that, that draw weight is essential um these bows right now they produce absolutely so much kinetic energy um that i mean what what, what are you drawing for a weight for whitetails. So right now my bow is set, my whitetail bow will be set at 60 pounds. Yeah. It'll be it was somewhere between 60 and 65. By the time I get, by the time I get everything backed out and I get my, you know, my limb bolts where, where I want them and they're, they're set up correctly. Um, then, then I'll go through and I'll hook on my digital bow scale and I'll come to full draw and, and I'll get that exact weight rate weight range. But I want that to be somewhere between 60 and 65 pounds. If it falls somewhere in there for me, I know that that's where I'm at my absolute best with that. Have you, have you had any shoulder injuries? So, yeah, I mean, I have experienced a shoulder injury and for me, in my opinion, it was from overshooting and pulling, uh, pulling too, too, too much, too many pounds <laughs> when yep. I was, when I was shooting. So I was commonly pulling somewhere between 70 and 73 pounds and testing tons of bows per year and setting up tons of bows and going through the paces of that and firing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of arrows. And that, that takes its toll. I mean, that takes its toll on the body. And, you know, eventually things just started to break down until I experienced a shoulder injury to the point where I was wondering if I was going to be able to hunt that fall or if I was going to have to go to a crossbow or something like that, because I simply couldn't, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't pull back 30 pounds. Um, and so for me, that was when that was for me, when draw weight became very critical, I did hardly paid attention to it. I shot 29 inch draw length and I shot 70 pounds. And if that bow arrived from the manufacturer and I clipped on my digital scale and it was actually 73 or 74 pounds, that's where that bow stayed. Um, because a lot of manufacturers will tell you that a bow will perform at its absolute peak at its peak draw weight. Yep. So that, that was something that I always had in the back of my mind, but after years of testing and tinkering with draw weight and and the advancements that have been made in bow design, um, from the cams to the riser to, to everything else, I mean, I can, I can drop my bow. I can drop my 70 pound bow down to right at 60 or just North of 60. And I can go through my paper tuning, walk back tuning, broadhead tuning process. And I've noticed very little difference in terms of how the, well that bow performs. So as soon as I got that out of my head, um, 
and, and just focused on taking care of myself and setting up bows appropriately for for the animal I'm hunting, for the, the weather conditions that I'm going to be finding myself in, to the clothing that I'm going to be wearing, and realizing that putting that arrow on the mark, putting that arrow in the boiler room is, is the most important thing. And whether I'm pulling 70 pounds or whether I'm pulling 45 pounds, it's, it's where you place that arrow. Yeah. That, you know, the, the idea that they perform optimally at, you know, the peak draw weight, whatever that, that, you know, mm-hmm. 60 to 70 or whatever Yep. that, you know, I, I get that message and, you know, I, they've said that to me a million times too, but it's almost, if that, if that were really, really relevant to our infield accuracy, most bow hunters would probably be better off getting a 50 to 60 and shooting right at 60. I I, no I would think. Um, and no, it, no, no question about it. And I don't know, I don't know if you re- really remember this or not, if you were in the bow hunting game when this was like big, but I remember when I started, it was such a manly thing to try to pull like 80 pounds, you know? So when oh, I was dude. like 14 and the, the dipshits that yeah. I was around, you know, everybody was like striving to pull as much poundage as possible. Sure. And now sure. with what we have, it's so silly. And I, I had a, I, I asked you about those injuries cause I had an injury uh, from with lifting weights in, I think it was 2015 and I tore, Uh I partially tore a muscle in my shoulder and in August and was like, like you, like, uh Oh, what am I going to do? And I ended up ordering a bow in that was a 50 to 60. And I think I shot 55 pounds that year. I, what I did was laid off it for like three weeks. My wife's a physical therapist and she's like, okay, well, I know you're going to hunt. So here's how you do this to like mitigate any more damage and maybe heal up a little bit. And I did I was terrified because I did the least amount of shooting in the preseason that I've ever done, but I still matched up broadheads and did, did that kind of stuff. And I still felt like I'm going into the field. Like if they get 20, 30 yards away, they're going to be in trouble probably. But like yep. you have that nagging, that, that, that devil on your shoulders. Like you're going to, this is going to be bad, dude. And yep. I'll never forget. I went out opening night in Wisconsin. Cause that was one of the years when Wisconsin and Minnesota had different openers. Wisconsin was a week earlier. Usually they fall on the same weekend opening night. It killed a buck came in. And I was like, okay, got that out of the way. Next weekend in Minnesota, killed a buck on opening day. And I'm like, okay, now I feel like, and I just, I went on a tear that year. Yeah, it was I like, remember. I feel like it was partially because I was shooting a bow that was so, so freaking comfortable. That's right. And that's where I was going to with, with everything, especially when you were asking me with the sheep bow. So from my sheep bow to my whitetail bow and anything else in between, whether I'm setting up for turkeys or anything, comfort for me is at a premium. I want the most comfortable shooting experience that I, that I can design. And when I find comfort, I usually find balance and I usually find accuracy. Um, I, I worry I 80 pound limbs mean zero to me. Um, I'm I'm not saying guys, you know, that if you want to shoot 80 pounds, you know, and you feel comfortable at 80 pounds, Hey, Hey, go for it. You know, there's a lot of bow manufacturers making 80 pound, 80 pound limbs right now and and models that were, that, that are designed for that. But you need to be honest with yourself and find that build where you can be the most lethal bow hunter you can be. And if at any point you are struggling to get that string back or it doesn't feel comfortable and you're really having to strain and, and, and push that into the air and and the right, it's not worth it. All you're going to do is you're going to, you know, you're going to create injury for yourself. You're not going to be as accurate as you want to be, and you're going to get very frustrated with how your shooting is going. You're not going to shoot as much. You're not going to shoot as often. And to do all of that, to say, well, yeah, I shoot 70 or 80 pounds, 
it's, it's, there's, there's zero point in it. There's zero point in it. You have to take care of your body and accuracy, comfort. Those things, those things are what, what is, are what going to get animals killed. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And you can shoot, shoot whatever you want, but just, yeah. Uh, are you comfortable? Are you exactly. enjoying it? And, yeah. and understand, you know, there's, I, I, I talk about this a lot, like in, in relation to dog training, like people think that they're going to train their, you know, their lab or their GSP all summer long. And then it, it's, you know, it's a rock star on whatever triple blind retrieves yeah. or tripod points. And then you get out there in the field and there's atrophy and it might be yep. 10%, 20%, 30%, depending on the age of the dog and the experience, you That's just right. know it's coming. And when That's you right. think about standing out there, shooting at whatever range, shooting at your block target and laying them in there on the bullseyes, you just know you're probably not going to shoot that well when 140 incher walks down the trail after you've been grinding it out for eight days of dark to dark sits, like it's just a different world. So you got to give yourself that chance. And the worst thing, you know, I know you've done this cause you've, you've shot with a lot of people and you photographed a lot of people. Right. Is when they get, you know, you mentioned way earlier that those aggressive cams and a bow that just is, is fighting to go off when you see people draw and then they have that slip moment where they catch it, it's over. Like it, it's over. It, 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 it takes him right out of the game. And that shot is probably not going to be a good one. And that happens when you draw on deer sometimes and it sucks. <laughs> it does suck. And I've, 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 I've done it in the moment that you are at full draw. And then in, in you, in that, and that release hand comes forward and you creep and then you go to pull back. So too much can go bad. You're going to punch you, you know, you're going to, if you're shooting a hinge, that arrow's ricocheting through the woods and carbon splattering everywhere. If you're shooting an index finger, chances are you're going to panic and go ahead and just punch right through it because you've already freaked yourself out because there was movement. If you're shooting a thumb, the same thing's going to happen. So, you know, that's where we talk about like being, being so comfortable in your routine and having a bow that is so comfortable at full, full draw. When I crawl into my anchor, I want to know that I can hold that bow until exhaustion. I want to know that when, when my, when I am at anchor and I'm, and I'm ready to shoot, I can hold that bow until exhaustion, until I physically can't hold anymore. And I'm the one that makes the choice to let down. I'm not going to let the cams or the design of that bow make that decision for me. Um, and, and to your point, you know, it all changes again, when you, when it's super cold outside and you're in lots of clothing and in the buck of a lifetime's coming down the trail and you, you know, you're, you're standing there and your legs are knocking and you're cold. Everything, everything should revolve around comfort at that point and being able to crawl into your anchor and know with absolute confidence that you, you have control. Yep. Well, and I, I've noticed something. I, I really noticed this last year hunting the late season, trying to kill one more doe here in the cities is, you know, you mentioned that, you know, hold the, hold the bow out and draw straight back to your face is your test. You know, if you can do that nice and slow, it's kind of like when you go to the gym and you see somebody lifting weights, if they're throwing their body everywhere, they're... Yep. They're overcome the people who can do slow, deliberate movement or, you know, mountain hunting, slow, deliberate uphill with a lot of weight on your back. That's somebody who's strong and prepared. If you got to, if you really got to fling your shit around, it's an, you're, you're not as, as strong as you think, but that, that slow draw back, you know, people get so worried about getting busted by a whitetail's drawing mm -hmm. and cause it, yeah, I mean, it can break a lot of different ways. It's much better to not get busted, but you know, in some situations where they're going to hear it, they're going to see it. Something like it's going to happen, but yep. I've noticed even in my life, just that, that nice, slow, straight, straight back draw, I get less 
they're they're less fired up if if they bust me. So you know, if you're doing something, you draw quickly, surprise you or something, or you have to sky that and get more movement, you're gonna yep. get busted worse. And yep. all that's gonna do is take away a little bit of your brain because you're gonna go, this sucker's moving. He's gonna go. And yep. if they, you know, they're the one thing that I realized uh, that happens all the time to me that I kind of have learned to mostly ignore is that there's a lot of times I'm going to get busted drawing. You know, when I'm, when I'm hunting in Northern Wisconsin, those deer bust me every single freaking time, but you can still yep. kill them. And it's, yep. it depends how bad they bust you. And you just, you kind of learn to live with it, but you can mitigate some of the, some of the bad bus by being yep. able to draw your bow better. And, th- and that's, that's exactly the case. And a good example of that for me happened last year here in Colorado. I was hunting a piece of public dirt, um, it was, it was later in November. Uh, I'd been really sick. Um, I got, I got the, the COVID bug and I was really sick and coming off of it. It was my first evening back into a, into a tree stand. And, and, and I was, I was weaker than normal and, and, and it probably wasn't as mentally laser focused as I normally would be. But when I got up in my stand, you know, later that evening, I, I had a buck, I had a buck come through and I made the decision right away that, you know, I was going to, I was going to go ahead and shoot that buck. And just the way that I had to position my stand in that gnarled, horrible cottonwood that are so common out West. I mean, you just don't get the straight hardwoods and I wasn't as high as I'd like to, to have been, but that was my option. And when I went to draw on that buck, it was cold. Um, the wind was blowing and I was still able to bring that string straight back. And that buck did bust me, but I could just tell by the way he, he fixed his gaze up there. It was not a bust like, holy crap. So my, my internal thinking didn't shift to, oh, what, what do I need to do now? He's busting me. Is he going to run? Is he going to leave? Is he going to wh- whirl? Do I need to let one rip? My, my concentration was able to stay totally focused on where my pin was sitting on him, letting him relax, and then going ahead and executing the shot. And, and within seconds, he just paid it no mind. But I didn't create a bunch of additional movement. And I would, because I didn't create that additional movement, he wasn't on alert. And because I knew he wasn't on super alert, my brain didn't go into the, oh crap mode. I just stayed true to everything that I was doing. And that resulted in a perfect arrow. Yeah. I mean, that's one, one thing that you really get when you, when you have enough experiences, you, you understand how, how much worse it gets due to the level of bust and like the level of of panic that's that's associated with how likely it looks they're going to leave your life <laughs> like yep the the more yep. that you can minimize you know the 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 feeling that these suckers are gone or this this dude's gonna to bail on me quick here the better yep. you'll do and it's a hard thing i mean Absolutely. i don't that's one of this is one of those things like telling people how to fight fish like i could i could write an entire book on how to fight smallmouth and it wouldn't do anyone any good. Like they have to just go right. do it. And like, you have to get into yep. these situations and see and lose some of those deer and panic and miss. And, and this, this stuff's just going to happen. And eventually you kind of come to a place where you're like, okay, I know how this is going to go. And then when it shifts gears, they're like, okay, now I know how this is really going to go. And it's just, yes. it's one of those things that's so important. It's, it that just doesn't get talked about much. I don't think. No. And it really doesn't. And it, and I think it's something that definitely needs to be talked about more and, and considered more. Because when you go into the whitetail woods with a bow that is comfortable for you, that fills you with confidence, and that is set up properly, your success rate is going to go up because you're going to make, you're going to execute better in crunch time. You're absolutely going to execute better in crunch time. 
Um, you know, so when I'm looking at a whitetail bow in my bow build, I'm seeking a bow with a non-aggressive cam system in terms of those cams just simply designed to, to, for, for maximum speed, right. Um, where they're just really itching to go. I want to make sure that, um, those cams are very comfortable, that the bow feels comfortable, that the draw is smooth. When you get an overly aggressive cam system, a lot of times you won't have that smooth transition to let off. There may be a little herky-jerky motion in there, and sometimes that herky-jerky motion can be enough to create that creep we talked about earlier. You might just, you know, when it goes back and you hit hit your back wall, especially if that back wall is a limb stop um, and you're not pulling into the cable. When you hit the limbs and it's rock hard and it happens that quick and you're pulling with that much torque, there's there's just so much that can go wrong. Yeah, well, and we should say too, you know, I, I know you've, you've set up a ton of bows. I've set up a ton of bows. We've been really lucky in the bow hunting industry that way. And one, yeah. what you realize if you get five or six bows a year and you set them up and shoot them and hunt with them, you realize that, you know, there's nothing wrong with brand loyalty, right? Like you, you might be no, a white fan, a Matthews fan, whatever. I don't, I don't care, yeah. but no, nothing wrong not, no bow company is producing the same thing year to year. And so even if they have a reputation for being a killer whitetail bow or a killer Western bow or something, you really got to shoot them. Cause it's, that's one thing that always amazed me how different, you know, a bow model from one manufacturer would be from, you know, the flagship from one year to the next and how much I might like or dislike it or how one company who I'm like, I've, I've, every time I shoot their bows, I don't really like it. And then I'll shoot one and I'll be like, Mm -hmm. I really like this one. There's a, there's a lot to it. And it's, it is really a matter of getting into a pro shop and, and spending some time with them and being serious about it. Cause when you get that one that, that works for you, it's really nice. Like you said, and when they're set up, well, you know, there's something that goes on there. Um, we've been dealing with this on the, on the dog side of things a lot with, with these pandemic pups, you know, everybody getting a puppy yep, last year absolutely. or adopting yes. dogs and then not getting them socialized very well because we were in a right. lockdown and you know, you weren't, you weren't out and about with people and in new situations. So we have a lot of dogs that are like a year old now that have a lot of problems. And what happens is yes. if you don't socialize them right away, when they're eight weeks old, 10 weeks old, they're, they're not as much fun to be around. And so you tend to keep them home more and exacerbate that problem. If yep. you've got a bow that's not very accurate, not shooting very well, or you don't like shooting it, you're going to shoot less and that's going to hurt you. You are. And on the other you side are. of things, if you get one that you really enjoy shooting and it's fun and you can you can lay them in there, you're going to shoot more. You are. And the thing is 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 what you said, I, I tell guys this all the time, is pro shops are there for a reason. Um whether you like to set up your own bow, I set up all my own bows um from from start to finish, top to bottom, but um shoot getting to shoot whether you're loyal to whatever manufacturer, manufacturers have done a great job of building different flagship bows or different budget bows. You have a whole line. And if you get into that pro shop and that pro shop's worth its salt, they're going to let you shoot just a ton of different bows. And you're going to start shooting them and you're going to find one or two that you're like, oh my gosh, from start to finish, that was silky smooth. From start to finish, it just felt right. The grip fell into the palm swell area. I crawled into my anchor perfectly. The shot broke just the way I should. The arrow was right where I wanted it to be. Um, the draw cycle was smooth. You're going to find that bow. Um, but if you just go you know, read ink on a website or a magazine article or anything like that and go, oh, yeah, that's the bow. That's the bow for me. I want that bow. And you go in and your heart is set and you're dead set on that bow, right? Um, 
you're not making the best informed buying decision that you possibly can. I mean, I think about it last week. I told you, I, I went and got a new truck and I didn't buy the first truck that I drove. I had my mindset. I'd wanted a Dodge diesel since I was a, since I was a kid. And besides the fact that they're a bazillion dollars, um, I, I drove two of them and I tried to force myself to like them. I tried to force myself to ignore the noise that I heard and the rough ride. And then I went back to the Chevy dealer and I jumped in the GMC and I went for a cruise and I'm like, this is it. And it's the same thing. Don't fight it. If you're in a pro shop and you had your mind set on this bow and you said, I'm getting this particular bow when I go in there and you shoot that bow and it does not feel like the bow is for you, then that is not the bow for you. And don't fight that decision. Just say, hey, okay, I tried it. I'd like to try this model from this same manufacturer, that's fine. I wanna try this model. Because the more you do that, the more you up your odds of finding the one that gives you the perfect test drive from top to bottom. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. So speaking of contentious topics, you yep. st- you're still a believer in stabilizers, huh? 100%. 100%. Even in the Whitetail Woods? Even in the Whitetail Woods. I am a believer in a stabilizer, and there's multiple <coughs> reasons for being a believer in a stabilizer, okay? So I know everybody's going to say, yeah, shoot. I said earlier, shooting to 20 to 40 yards, right? 
shooting from 20 to 40 yards, which is most whitetail shots is that I've experienced are going to be between 20 and 40. My Western shots can be a little bit longer where balance comes at more of a premium in terms of where a stabilizer with an offset, um, experimenting with different weights on the front end and, and the back end of those bars, um, is, is it may be a little bit more important, but a stabilizer, I, I always tell people, uh, if you're going to put a five inch stabilite rubber stabilizer on your bow that wiggles when you can bend it and wrap it around your riser, um, that is not a stabilizer. Okay. That, that's piece of that stabilizer is doing one thing. It's, it's a noise and vibration device. It is not a stabilizer. A stabilizer is meant to, it's in the word, it's meant to stabilize you. And so when I put a stabilizer in my bow and I spend time tinkering with weights, you want to pick a stabilizer with a good system that allows you to, 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 to take weight on and off of that stabilizer, because you're going to find a point where when you pull back at full draw, that bow sits like a well-trained retriever. That bow just sits there and it will hold better on target. Um, when you don't have that stabilizer, you have weight out front. You've got your sight. A lot of whitetail guys, I mean, myself included, I shoot a dovetail sight. I, my sight's out front. You have weight out in front of your riser. And so that stabilizer helps with that a lot. And now you won't know it unless you try it. You won't know the full benefit of a good stabilizer system unless you try it. As far as noise and vibration, you don't need a stabilizer. These bows are too quiet. Don't, don't, if, if you don't want one and it doesn't feel comfortable to you, again, going back to comfort, that's fine. You, you don't have to run a stabilizer. I'd rather see a guy not run a stabilizer than put a four inch or five inch stabilizer on the front of his bow that was built for no other purpose. Cause you don't need the noise vibration. If you're shooting a good setup, your arrows heavy enough, those types of things, that arrow is going to absorb the energy. You're not going to get the noise and vibration, but to be as accurate as you possibly can be, which I believe is essential from the Western woods. To the, to, to the whitetail woods, a stabilizer, a stabilizer system. And I say system, and that doesn't mean you have to run a back bar. It doesn't mean you have to run any of that stuff, but a system that you are confident in that will, that will produce for you and give you added confidence and balance that bow and allow you to hold a, a steadier and let that bow aim. You're, you're, you're going to up your odds of success. In my opinion, <laughs> you should have seen. So, so the, the, where this comes from is I've just gotten to the point where whitetail hunting, I don't have a stabilizer on my bow. Tony does not drive me freaking bonkers every time I see a picture. <laughs> <laughs> it drives a lot of people nuts. And I, I brought it up to Mark uh, when we were out in Montana recently filming some YouTube stuff. And I was, I kind of like jokingly like, oh, you got a, got a stabilizer on your whitetail bow. And he, the way he looked at me, he's like, well, yeah. And he's like, you don't use a stabilizer? I was like, no. And he just looked at me like I was the worst <laughs> pond yep. scum ever. Yep. Yep. And well, here's here's the thing, though. I mean, you're confident in it, right? So again, everything goes back to confidence. So if you're if you're if you're not happy with the stabilizer on your bow, if you feel like it's adding too much weight, you know, a lot of guys are really concerned about weight. Um, I like a heavier bow. For me, the heavier the better. When I'm done with it, a heavier bow means a steadier hold for me. From, from from east to west, it doesn't matter. Heavier bow equals a steadier hold. Um, but if you just don't like the feel, so much of archery is feel. And if you don't like that feel, then 
you can take that stabilizer off and experiment with it because like I said, it's, it's not doing you any purpose if it's not being used as a stabilization device. Yeah. If you just have it on there to cancel noise and vibration, just get it off of there yeah. because you're just adding unnecessary, unnecessary weight in terms of if weight is an issue for you as far as feel. Yeah. Well, and I, I should say, you know, I went through a long period of my life where I shot a lot, especially before we had the girls. I, I shot a lot yeah. of long range stuff. And I realized, you know, shooting in the wind and shooting, you know, just different conditions. I was like, I know so, there's times where I knew a stabilizer was helping me. If I was stretching out beyond 40 yards, I knew it. I could tell. And, you know, same thing with certain kind of releases and same thing with a certain amount of wind. You know, wind really started to affect me 40 and beyond. And so yep. I, as I kind of got out of that stage and couldn't shoot as much because I had little kids and just more stuff to do. My, yep. my range kept creeping in and creeping in. And I'm like, you know, I'm a 40 and under shooter now. And I just couldn't find enough difference to justify the kind of stabilizer I knew I would actually need to help me shoot better. And so it was kind of like, you know, if I'm shooting whitetails at 20 yards and my bow is quiet, I'm like, I don't need this. <laughs> and right. I know people all the time, I, I, people all the time, they roll their eyes. I'm like, I don't know. It just works for me. <laughs> Okay, so but then the, 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 this question has to come into play too. How many whitetail guys? I mean, I saw more hunters out west last year than I've ever seen. More hunters are expanding their adventures, right? Yep. They're coming west in search of mule deer, pronghorn, elk, everything like that, and they don't want to set up multiple bows. They, they you know, they they just want one solid bow. And when you start tinkering and changing things in terms of weight on your bow, it changes an entire feel. So. Oh. For someone like you, when you come here to hunt antelope, I've noticed you don't have a stabilizer on your <laughs> boat. And I've remembered a few yard, a few shots past 40 to, that maybe didn't go as quite as planned. Is that possible? Is that to fair be to say? fair when I to be fair, to be fair, I've been told that it was going to be a slam dunk out of a blind at close range. I knew that was coming. I said, walked right into it. Yes, but <laughs> chaos chaos ensues on the prairies as you know with tarantula hawks and thorns and scorpions and rattlesnakes so it's you true. should expect and just knowing me that i'm an idiot that we're probably going to be slipping around the cactus trying to slip an arrow into a pronghorn and the shot's going to be beyond 40 so i will guys need to keep that you're right and i will say that i do i drew an any deer tag in north dakota this year and i do have a stabilizer on my bow <laughs> okay so you now have a stabilizer on your bow. So my question to you is how long is that stabilizer on your bow? It's long enough and it's you know heavy what? enough. Yeah. You'll be very, you'll be okay, very pleased when you see my okay. kill photo with a two and a half year old, uh, <laughs> mule yes. deer, you're going to be like, Love yes. It. Okay. Are you running a back bar system with an offset or anything like that? Or are you just running a straight front stabilizer? No, system? Just a straight front. Perfect. Yep. Yeah. And, and again, that's, that's, that's why manufacturers make these different types of stabilizers um, so that you can play with those different types of stabilizers. And, you know, I feel like I'm probably beating a dead horse here, but it all goes back to comfort and what you feel most comfortable with. And if you take your time and play with different settings with your bow, whether that's moving your sight closer in towards the riser or moving your sight out um, on the riser, whether it's, you know, take shooting with your quiver on or shooting with your quiver off or finding a quiver that hugs the riser tightly, everything you do, you should have a purpose for doing. And the more you spend more time, you spend testing and tinkering and, and, and looking at these types of things, the more confident you're going to be in your final bow build. And when you're confident in your final bow build, you're going to be a confident archer. Yeah. Um, should we talk, should we talk arrows a little bit? Maybe. 
How, what, what, yeah, is so, your, what are your whitetail arrows weigh in at? Uh, my whitetail arrows right now, so so my whitetail arrows weigh in right at about 485 grains. Yep. They're Easton 5 millimeter um, full metal jacket. Um, I love the I love the aluminum for reduced friction, pass-throughs, and they hit like a ton of bricks. Um, my kinetic energy rating is right where I want it to be. They have a good FOC as far as front of center that I've taken the time to set up. Um, and so my whitetail arrow is 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 actually heavier um, than my Western arrow. Um, and I have reasons for that and people will object and, and, and that, but that's what makes archery fun is, is you can spin, you can spin things how you want. Um, but again, it all goes back to what I've had the most success with and what I believe to be true. Well, so my white, your concern area, there trajectory. Well, I mean, for me, a heavier arrow is quieter. Mm. I'm, I'm a firm believer that I don't think these white, t- I don't think these deer are hearing the bow go off. Um, and a lot of guys will say that is completely wrong and it might be completely wrong. They, there are some bows that got, but I think they hear the arrow. That is my opinion. I think that they are hearing and reacting to the arrow in flight and a heavier arrow is going to be quieter in flight. I mean, it's, I, I've, I've proven it to myself with high definition microphones. So I like a heavier arrow in terms, you know, for, for whitetail and because I'm shooting usually between 20 and 40 yards, I'm not that concerned with things like drop. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm usually shooting in, in, in a confined space with a lot of trees and things like that. So I'm not concerned as concerned about, uh, th- th- there's just a lot of things that go into it. A heavy arrow will, will, will reduce wind buck and things like that. But a heavy arrow for me just is perfect for whitetails. I, I like to be right around that 475 to 500 mark, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But I mean, isn't it, you know, saying that they don't hear the bow go off, you know that they hear the bow go off sometimes, but that sometimes they that heavier yeah. arrow, you know, the the noise of a bow going off is vibration going sure. somewhere, not into it's your arrow. Simple. And the heavier right. the arrow, the more vibrations going in there. So it's all tied together. But right. I think I, I don't entirely disagree with that. I, I do wonder, especially like I think that broadhead choice has a huge impact on the sound of an arrow. And I know you've, I know you've stood next to people who shoot like no vented question. broadheads. And so no I think, I think cutting down every bit of noise everywhere is a solid choice. Yeah. And I don't want to overlook bone noise. Cause like I said, bows, I mean, that is, that is something, some bows produce more noise than other others. I just like to make sure that from top to bottom, again, that my, my setup is as quiet as possible. And when you get a really lightweight arrow that's sizzling and you get, um, you know, a vented uh, fixed blade on the front end of that, you're you're going to create you're going to create more noise. I mean, you just are. That arrow is going to be louder in flight. I mean, if you stand at a you know safe place downrange where you, there's a wall or something like that, I've been in pro shops where you know you're separated from the counter by just one you know wall that you can hear through very easily, and guys are in there testing broadheads and stuff like that. And you'll hear an arrow go and you'll be like, oh my gosh, wow, that was extremely loud. And then, you know, me being me, I've got to go in there and see like what's going on. And nine times out of 10, it's a guy shooting a flamethrower with an ultralight arrow with a minimum GPI rating for grains per inch for that will work for that bow safely and shooting a large fixed blade broadhead with vented blades. Um, And then those types of things are just going to amplify the amount of noise that is created. Yeah. Well, yeah. And if you think about it, this kind of goes back to our comfort and drawing situation. 
you know, when, it, when a buck walks in, you might have three mistakes you can make, little sound mistakes. And right. the first one might be hearing you draw. <laughs> mm-hmm. The second one might be, if, if you get three, the second one might be that bow going off. And the third one might be that arrow coming at it, and things start to fall apart. If you get three, yeah. you might only get two. You might only get That's one. Right. And so addressing all that stuff is important. And man, I know you know this because you photographed people shooting a lot and you've been around them a lot. I was just blown away, not only by some of the vented broadheads that you're talking about, how loud they are. I mean, it's like a loud whistle, but also just the differences in bows sometimes. And, you know, back when people, you don't see this a lot anymore, but people still do it once in a while, that the rubber aligner for a peep sight. Yeah. You stand next to that. Holy cow. It's so loud. Yeah. It's very loud. Yeah. And so there's something to having somebody stand next to you and shoot. Yes. It's important. Yep. It's very important. And another thing I would recommend too, is if your bow sounds loud to you when, when it, when you shoot, it probably is. Um, and you know, if you want to set up, uh, just take a standard video camera, set it up. If you're shooting at 30 yards, set that video camera up at 15 and make sure everything's really quiet. Pick a real, you know, a day where the wind is nothing and it's really calm. So you don't get anything else and shoot some different arrow combinations and then go back and play them. And you will hear, (laughs) you will hear a significant difference. Um, another great way to do it is, you know, standing at a safe, when I say safe, I mean, I always want something between me and that arrow, um, as far as a wall or some, some, something like that. Um, don't ever put yourself in harm's way, but you can get and listen to a buddy's arrow or have them listen to your arrow as it's passing. And, and, and they'll, you know, many times I've come out and been like, man, whatever you just shot is what you need to go with. Um, or come out and said, wow, what was that? You know, and then you start looking at the build of that arrow and the build of that bow. And then the answer becomes very clear of why that was so loud. Yeah. Well, and we should say this too, you know, like you mentioned this before. Yeah. Obviously most people listening to this are going to have one bow, right? Yeah. So get the right one. And obviously people listening to this aren't going to have multiple, multiple arrow options. So just as like a sort of as a guideline to, to all of this stuff we're talking about, I, at least personally me, and I know you do this too. I just always go heavier. I err on the side of heavier. And, and you've, you mentioned this earlier about, you know, I forget about speed, who cares? And, you know, up, up the, you know, go get on the right side of spine first, you know, make sure you're, yes. make sure you're working with that yes. and make sure you're working with something that, that weighs a little bit more. And you forget about that chronograph, forget about how, if, if you're worried about aerospeed, just lie, just tell people you're shooting 340 and it's awesome. Yep. Nobody cares, yep. Yep. but, but wow. air on the side of heavier, you're going to get, you're going to, you know, you'll get better penetration. You'll get a quieter bow. The whole, the whole thing just works out generally better. Yep. From top to bottom. And, and, and one thing I wanted to touch on too, that we, we, we kind of, we, we kind of touched on it, but we tiptoed around a little bit too, is for those guys setting up one bow, you know, going back to, to comfort being at a premium, especially with the cam system and the overall build of the bow. Um, how many times have you held on a whitetail and held on a whitetail and held on a whitetail a lot, right? Yep. Um, I've held on elk until I, when the bow went off, I honest to God, don't know how, how I hit them because I'd, I'd held so long and you need to be able to do that. Um, you need to be able to hold at full draw. And one of the things you need to practice is doing that. Go outside when you, in it, you know, pick a shooting day, pick a shooting session. I always give myself goals when I go out to shoot, but make your goal for that day to hold have somebody stand there, start a timer on a stopwatch or a cell phone, and you hold that bow until 
you cannot hold it anymore. Don't shoot the arrow and go ahead and let down and then have them give you the time. Yep. I'll bet it will shock you because you'll think you're, oh, this has been three minutes and it's been 25 seconds. Yeah. It's like um, doing planks. Yeah. Yeah. It, it feels like forever, but, um, and then gradually, you know, you, you can build up, um, your strength and stamina by doing that, but only if you have a bow that will allow you to do that. Um, you need to realize that there's going to be lots of times in a hunting situation where you're going to, where you're not going to just draw back everything. The stars are going to align. You're going to put your pin there and the animal's going to stop perfectly and you're going to shoot. And boom, it took from top to bottom. It took seven seconds. You know, there's going to be a lot of times where it's the exact opposite. And that, 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 that buck's staring up at you, or he all of a sudden quartered two and you need for him to go back to a broadside or quartering away position, or that bull comes in and catches draw for a minute and he's just frozen staring at you at a full frontal at 32 yards. And you have to hold through those moments. So again, you got to have a bow that allow you to do that. And you have to practice being able to do that too. Yeah. It, I know this drives you nuts, but when you hear people say, you know, I held on that, I, I drew and I held back at full draw for three minutes before I got yep. that shot. I'm like, yeah, you mean 21 yeah. seconds. <laughs> Yep. And I've done it as far as it drove me so nuts that like on a lot of outdoor television shows and stuff like that, guys are like, man, I, I held for two and a half minutes. You know, I'll actually rewind it with our TV technology. Now check it on my cell phone. And it was 18 seconds. Yeah. You know, it just feels like that in the moment you're hyped up, your adrenaline's pumping muscles are starting to break down. The shot process is starting to break down and the urge to bail out of that shot and everything else starts to creep in. And you have to be able to stay poised and stay steady and remain at full draw and just continue to execute the best you can to give the, to put the best arrow out there that you can every yeah. shot. Uh, yeah. And that, and that, that urge to <laughs> bail out, like you said, is where a lot of quartering two shots get taken and a lot of questionable shots. Cause it's like, oh, I got to get this over. I'm going to, I'm going to have to let down or shoot and people get mm -hmm. in the mindset that I got to shoot. And that's when a lot of that stuff really breaks bad. Yep. And, and something else, I know it's might not be on the full gear topic here, but one of the things I want to recommend to people, especially with shooting as you're preparing for whitetail season or whatever you're preparing yourself for shooting wise, come to the understanding and know right now that you're human. And that you're going to have days where you go out and shoot. You might shoot lights out one day and you might feel like, oh my gosh, everything in the world that gets in, gets in front of me this year is in trouble. You may go out the next day and be like, this just isn't going well. It's not feeling right. I'm not executing right. Put the bow down. Don't sit there and shoot 200 arrows to say you shot 200 arrows and develop bad habits. Let it go mentally walk away from the situation mentally. I mean, you look at the greatest athletes in the world. You look at the Tom Brady's, you look at the, you know, Usain Bolt, Michael Phelps, whoever you want to look at some of the greatest of all time. Every one of them has poor performances. Every one of them has a bad day every now and then. And you're going to be no different as an archer. You're going to have those bad days. And if you're out there, don't fight it. Don't fight the mental game. Don't fight the physical game. Don't start changing things within your setup and thinking, oh, my draw link's too long or, oh, I need to switch arrows or this release. I should go to a hinge or an index or this or that. Stay true to what you have and what has proven itself well for you and just realize I'm having a bad day. Put the bow up. Go play with your kids. Go play with your dog. Go fishing. Get away from it and then pick it up again because that's the best medicine you can, you can do for yourself shooting wise, mentally wise, everything. Yeah. And that's, that's why you give yourself 
lots of time to get in the groove over That's month, right. months and months and you don't pick up the bow yep. on September 1st yep. when the opener's two weeks later. And that that, yep. that idea of walking away, that's a hard one. It's a hard one to realize how important it is. But there's a reason mm-hmm. if you're, you know, I always say this about people who miss miss a big buck at 20 yards when they're like, oh, man, I was just lights out on the range. And I'm like, yeah, something was different. What was it? Yep. <laughs> like, And when you think about if you can go out and you're laying them in there and you're having a great time target shooting and the next time you go out, you suck and you get angry right away, you got something else going on. You shouldn't be there. Yep. And it's time nope. to just put it down and go back. We see the same thing with dogs all the time where a dog will be just on fire. Just everything's just tight one day. Mm-hmm. And then the next day they're not into it. And it does not yep. do you any good to force them through it because they're not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. That's right. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And then you have a whole new slew of problems. Then things like target panic will start to creep in. You'll start questioning everything that you do. It's better to just walk away from it for that, for that, for that period of time, resume it again the next day, get your mind right and go back after it and realize that it was just you. You're human. It happens. Um, You've hunted, you've hunted mountain lions, elk, all the Western (laughs) stuff. Um, You've, you've hunted whitetails a lot. What, mm-hmm. what is it in a, a guy living in Colorado, like you with the options that are there every year, various tags you can get and the, you know, yeah. the close proximity States, what, what is it about whitetails that hooked you? Well, I'll say hooked in a big way because I haven't hunted mule deer here in eight years. It has been eight years. I have some of the best mule deer hunting that anyone could ask for 12 minutes from my house. And I haven't put in for a mule deer tag in eight years. And the reason for it is, is I love the whole process that is whitetail hunting. I love, I love everything about it. I love hanging the stands. I love trimming shooting lanes. I love hanging cameras. I love scouting. I love watching bucks on an alfalfa field. Um, And for me, being able to hunt that animal for a long period of time throughout different phases of their, of, of, of the cycle from September through December and see how things change and be out there to experience that and is second is it's, it's the best. I mean, it is the, it is the absolute best. And so for me, that is what is fun. And I don't think personally as a bow hunter, we bow hunt for a challenge. In my opinion, I love the challenge of bow hunting. And I don't know that there's a bigger challenge than killing a mature whitetail buck. You have to be on your a game. Everything has to be right. Or you just have to get stupid, dumb, lucky. And I don't get stupid, dumb, lucky very often. I'm an unlucky person as it is. And so I have to make sure everything is right. If I'm going to, and, and killing, killing any, any, any whitetail for that matter. Um, I just, I just like the draw of it. I like how adaptable they are as a species. I mean, now we have them on the prairie out here. I've seen them in the Canyon country standing next to mule deer out here. I love their adaptability. Um, I love their aggressive nature when they rut. Um, I love that they're susceptible to food patterns, um, that you can put a lot of work in that water plays such a huge role, um, figuring out weather patterns, moon phases to me, it's the education part of it and being a continual learner and realizing that when it comes to that species, I, I know a, nothing. <laughs> I, I, I think I know a lot, but I know, I know very little. And that's, it, that's exciting because I mean, there's always room to grow and get better. Um, and that's in any hunting, but as a whitetail hunter, I really feel like there's so much to learn and get better at that will make you a more accomplished whitetail hunter. 
Is there is there a part of it since you're you're born and raised in Colorado and Colorado yep. is the destination for non-residents for elk right now? Yeah. And just, you know, obviously antelope and, and mule deer as well, but elk is the big thing. Is there part of this this whitetail obsession? Is it is it kind of one of those things out there where, you know, a lot of Western states, there's the keynote species and, and whitetail is pretty bottom of the barrel and doesn't yeah. get as much attention. Is part of it just the fact that you've got an animal there that's not getting as much attention as the elk and the mule deer and you can kind of go work them and do your own thing without constant people around you? Yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's not because it is. I mean, whitetail take. I mean, every every deer tag in Colorado, we went to an all draw system across the board for deer. You cannot get an over the counter tag for deer. And I think it's been gosh, it's been a grip of time. I can't tell you how long. Um, But every year there's whitetail tags that are left over. I mean, for rifle, there's there's tons of whitetail tags left over because it is a secondary deer species and a secondary species when it comes to Colorado and the West. And where I live, I have great access to whitetails and very few people that want anything to do with them at all. So pressure is down, numbers are up, and it's a great time to be a Western whitetail hunter for that for that reason. Um, so I pay very close attention to that. Um, I didn't see another hunter hunting public land where I hunted last year. Now I do hunt a lot of private land here close, but the tag I drew last year was a list B. Actually, it was a list B tag, but I drew it on my third choice and it was public or nothing in that unit. So I hunted public land and I hunted hard from October until the end of November when I killed my buck minus the little COVID break. I didn't see one other hunter on public land. I didn't see a tree that had had a stand in it. I didn't see boot tracks. I didn't have people bumbling into a setup or guys parked in the parking area when I showed up. It was like hunting private land. Mm-hmm. And the, the the animals on that, on those public tracks, acted like animals that were on well-managed private land because they hadn't experienced pressure. Yeah. Um, so I got to observe, you know, that's a lot of fun when you get to observe deer behavior the way they're supposed to act when they're not being pressured. Um, so that's a big part of it for me. And I, I, and I can't speak to a lot of other Western states. Um, but I know Colorado, um, whitetail wise, it's, it's, it's a secondary deer species. Yeah. Well, and that's, I, I just did a piece about this where, you know, a couple situations where, uh, public land for whitetails hunts better than private land. Mm -hmm. And it's, there's such a, pervasive mentality out there that you always got to get on private ground to have the best deer hunting possible. And one of the, one of the examples I gave was, you know, it's, it's changing with Western whitetails now to some extent, because some of the States like North Dakota are really popular and people have, they're keyed into that velvet hunt. And so it's leveled off somewhere, but there's still an element of, you know, if you're in a state that has six, seven, eight, 10 big game species that you might draw in any given year, the the whitetail's usually not going to be super high on the list for a lot of people, and so those public land situations can be really, really good because people are looking for other stuff. Yeah, they can be money. I mean, they, and with lots of western states going, I mean, we've seen walk-in access in my neck of the woods just increase. Montana has the block management program where a lot of these areas where whitetails dwell are being opened up. You know, landowners are opening up um, their property to the the state game and fish and they're working together to create more access for hunters and as that access is created um you know guys and gals get a lot more opportunity um i know right here in my little neck of the woods two years ago there was no walk-in access zero you could not find walk-in access we had some state land 
but no walk-in access. Right now, I would say there is anywhere between 70 and 80,000 acres of prime walk-in access. And of that, of that acreage, all of it is whitetail. Now there'll be mule deer there too. There, you might find some elk roaming a river bottom or a bear, or, you know, those sorts of things. But when you look at it as a, as a big game hunter and you start looking at where my neck of the woods and start looking at those types of things, you say, well, that's whitetail habitat, um, that's getting opened up. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's something that everybody should consider. Um, the seasons out West are, you know, they're long. <laughs> we have a, we have a very extensive, very extensive seasons where you can chase these deer and, and experience them at different points, um, where, where they are susceptible. I mean, it's just, it makes it really neat. Yeah. Well, that, that point there of, you know, that, that being whitetail ground with, you know, the potential for some random, you know, some small sure. population mule deer, small population elk, whatever, yeah. nobody's going to those places to hunt elk. Like maybe a no, local might get no. keyed in if they spot something, yeah. but yeah. no dudes loading up in Texas and driving up there and going, this is my elk spot. They're going, they, no. it's just not going to happen. And nope. you see this too. Uh, I, I've seen this sometimes when I'm hunting Western whitetails is even on, you know, national forests, national grasslands, where there are viable populations of other species and people are drawing once in a lifetime elk tag or they're mule deer hunting or something. They're, they're not usually going and messing with those little concentrations of whitetails along the bottoms and the rivers. And so even if it feels like there's a lot of people around you, if they're not targeting whitetails where whitetails live, you can have one hell of a hunt, even if they're the surrounding areas getting hit pretty hard with other pressure. You can, you absolutely can. And, and one other thing not to, not, not to get too concerned about, because I've, I've done a lot of walk-in hunting in Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado. Um, you know, a lot of guys will say, well, I don't want to hunt whitetails there because I know those areas are being opened up for bird hunters too. You know, there's, there's dove seasons going on. There's quail, there's pheasants, there's guys accessing river bottoms and creeks for ducks and geese, ag fields for geese, that sort of thing. You know, that sort of thing is, is, is not something that you, in my opinion, that you, that you really need to, that you really need to worry about. Yeah. You can pay attention to where guys are at and stuff like that, but it plays such a small role, um, in the over, in my experience, um, yeah, I've had a pheasant hunter walk through, um, you know, but then 25 minutes later, I've had four does and a buck walk through. I mean, you just, you just don't know because a lot of these Western deer are traveling are they're, they're big time travelers. Um, because there's a lot of areas where, you know, they don't have a 50 acre block of timber that is dense and thick that they can just stay in and run circles and live there. They, they, they have very, lots of areas that are very open. They change bedding areas constantly. They move a lot. They get bumped and they'll follow a pinch point for miles along a Creek and then be somewhere completely different and be there for a while. So, you know, don't get too caught up in thinking that, you know, oh gosh, you know, a, a bird hunter walk through and I'm done for the day. Just stay put, stay put. And, 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 you know, know that there, there's deer out there and they're, they're moving, especially, you know, during those rut times and, and, and you'll, you'll have success. Yeah. Well, and if, as somebody who hunts pheasants a lot with dogs, I can yeah. tell you that deer are very tolerant of you if they think they're hidden. They, Absolutely. you know, and, and honestly, you know, observing general hunting populations as far as, as bow hunters for whitetails or pheasant hunters, mm-hmm. most people I see on public land are not working that hard. There's the, there's yeah. sort of this message out there in the hunting media that if you're hunting public land, you're busting your ass and it is just not true. There are people out there who are for sure. sure. But a lot yeah. of times when you, if you looked at a, 
you know, you pull up Onyx and you look at a spot and you're like, okay, well, there might be pheasant hunters in there. You can pretty much call your shots on where they're going to be. <laughs> like, you know where they're going to hunt. And so, okay, yep. yeah, maybe maybe don't throw on the ghillie suit and sit right in the middle of the CRP because that's probably where they're going to end up. <laughs> but yeah. you, you can kind of predict that stuff and know, and it is, you know, I mean, this stuff's multi-use. Like, you're going to deal with other people coming in for other things, but those deer are pretty used to that. And they, they know how to avoid them. So, okay, what are you going to do? Where, how are you going to get to where the deer are going to be when those pheasant hunters run through there? Yep, absolutely. And, and I've, I, you know, I've seen it a bunch too, where I watched a buck two years ago, um, got bumped out of a little tamarack thicket, um, by some, some pheasant hunters. They were pushing a Creek bottom. I was in a tree stand about half a mile away. I was glassing them cause I wanted to see what they were doing, how they were going to use the terrain, that sort of thing, how close that I thought they might get to me. And I watched them kick up this 130 inch whitetail and that buck literally ran along the edge of the Creek for maybe 50 yards, went down in the Creek, crossed the Creek, came up almost parallel to him on the other side. They never saw him <laughs> and he walked back towards their direction and rebedded in not in the same spot but on the other side of the creek in in the whole grand scheme of things that buck didn't move 250 yards from where he got bumped yep and so thinking about that if you weren't there and you were hunting deer where those guys happened to go through and you you know you weren't there in the morning if that was a morning sit and you were planning an evening hunt or something like that nothing nothing bad really happened you're going to go in there that buck's still going to be within that 200 or 300 yard radius of where you are sitting. And when he gets up and moves for the evening or, or goes to poop, whatever, you know, you, uh, you can't over, you can't overthink those types of things. And, and like you said, that buck, who knows how many times he got bumped out of that tamarack patch by a bird hunter or a farmer coming in to check cattle or whatever. Yep. I mean, I think, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I kind of think that's one of the benefits of hunting public land whitetails is because I've seen that happen many times too, where it's like, yeah, they, if they reacted the way we kind of give them credit for like, Oh, that buck's going to be out of here and he's not coming back for a long time. Like they don't do that. Like they get bumped right. a lot. Like if you, if yep. you look at some of these properties around my house here in the twin cities, between just the people up, you know, with their dogs, hunting, woodcock hunters, whatever. Yeah. They get bumped all the time. They always come back. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's a lot you can do with that and realize that those spook deer, they're not that bad. They're going to come back around, like you said. And when you observe them in those situations, you see how they really function versus what we think. So it's so <laughs> fascinating to, to get like, to get those lessons that teach you, like, I always thought they did this. And then I got to actually watch a buck get bumped in yeah. this situation and see his entire reaction to that and see how how much less drastic it was. That stuff's so cool. It's very cool. It's very cool to observe. And, and a lot of times our perceptions are so far off, you know, to what we think, you know, to what we think happened and would actually happened. Yeah. So, you know, it just sometimes like we've talked about this before, you can be your own worst enemy out there. Yeah. I talk to Mark about that all the time. I'm like, dude, <laughs> what we think we know, that's the enemy. I don't think he believes yep. me, but I'm going to convince him yet. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, it is the enemy because it changes our whole mindset and it can change our entire game plan about how we're going to go about things. I mean, I've seen, I've had lots of buddies be like, you know, I'm not going to go out this evening. Uh, you know, the, the rancher called me and a guy drove through there and you know, they were wrangling up the horses on there and I'm, I'm just, I'm not even going to go out now. It's not even worth it. Those deer are two miles away. Uh, you know, you can, you can convince yourself of a lot of things, but 
if you're not out there, I mean, and when you do go out there, like you said, and you witness some of these things and you see how those deer react to pressure and you're like, whoa, that's so much different than what I thought that they would do. Or, you know, it, it, it opens your eyes to a lot of things and it, it, it helps you, um, not overthink it a lot of times. Yeah. I mean, I had, I, back to back years, I had situations. One, one was on public here in the cities where I had a woodcock hunter. I was watching a doe way out in the field. I had a woodcock hunter push her right to me and I killed her. And then the next year I had a doe and two fawns come down, go out into a field. This was on private. And then I heard mm-hmm. that chug of a four wheeler. God damn it. Came in, pushed that doe right in front of me and I shot her. And, you know, yep. last year that buck I killed in, in Iowa down there on public land, I bumped that buck out of his bed and he ran away and I killed him an hour and a half later when he came back, you know, like exactly it's, it's real important to, to see that stuff happen and experience it. Cause it changes your entire outlook forever because you go, right. this is not yeah, You know, you, you jump them. They might not come back, right? Like you might not yep. ever see him again, but yep. it's not a foregone conclusion that it's going to go that way. And a lot of times we give, these deer so much credit, especially bucks and be like, Oh, they're like supernatural and they have a sixth sense and there's no way he's coming. I'm like, he lives there. This is a rabbit with antlers that lives there. That's his home. He's coming back and yeah, he might get a little bit, a little bit trickier around that area to figure out, but it's not like he's not hopping over to the next section. If they did that every time you jumped them, they would all die as year and a half olds because they'd be in unfamiliar territory constantly. Yep. And they, they don't want to put themselves in that position. And, you know, it's, it was neat for me last year, uh, a guy in Nebraska that I know, not, not the, my buddy Taryn that I always hunt with, but one of his buddies, he has a, he has a, just a great farm out there. And he shot this deer twice during archery season. He shot him once in October and shot him again in November and killed him with a rifle in December. And that was on like 50 acres. That buck never left there. And he had been shot twice with an arrow, survived and got killed opening morning a rifle it's crazy so to say like you know oh my gosh i'm never i'm never gonna see that buck again he's going totally nocturnal he'll never walk he'll never be a day walker again yeah man no i don't buy it i just i've I've seen too much i've heard too much i mean you just yeah yeah that I i was thinking about that when i was i was doing an interview the other day um when you start hunting public land or you start hunting a lot of pressured deer it's amazing how often when you butcher them, you find a, you know, a muzzleloader oh, bullet in them man. or an old broadhead, or they've got oh, some crazy. kind of serious wound to them. Yep. Yep. They do. They'll, they'll have some, but like you said, a lot of them, they have a home and that home is what they're most familiar with. And that's, that home is where they feel the most comfortable. They know how to, they know every nook and cranny of that area, as opposed to, like you said, wandering into a new area for the first time. I mean, how out of place do you feel when you go, you know, when you go on a, the first time, I remember the first time I left here and went to Canada, just crossing the border to go hunt. I felt, I didn't feel comfortable. I felt odd. I felt out of place. The territory, I couldn't see five feet in front of my face because of trees. And if if there was an opening, it was freaking water. And I, I didn't feel comfortable. Um, it's, it's, they're, they're no different in those terms. I mean, you, you know, they move to a new area and sometimes they get forced into that. Yeah. But when they do, they're not comfortable. Yeah. You want to talk about being uncomfortable, grow up in the Midwest and then head to La Junta, Colorado in August. <laughs> You'd be like, well, there's a rattlesnake. There's some fire ants. Here's a tarantula hawk chasing me. Don't forget about the scorpions and, uh, the yeah. occasional black widow and the blind. My buddy just got stung by a scorpion. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> 
So much fun, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, Lots of good information. Uh, can't wait to see the, the, the sheep that you kill. Uh, super stoked for you for that, man. I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Um, always been a fan of this podcast and it was, it was an honor to get to be on it. And, uh, yeah, I hope guys and gals can find some useful information there. And, uh, I'm looking forward to the sheep hunt. I'll hopefully, you know, you'll be updated regularly as you know. <laughs> Definitely. Well, good luck, buddy. All right, bud. Thanks. Well, that's it for this week, my friends. I have been your guest host, Tony Peterson, and this has been the Wired to Hunt podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening. We absolutely love and appreciate all your support, and we will see you right here next week for more deer hunting conversations and wisdom. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.